This evening I'd like to speak about insight. I think initially when we approach or begin on a spiritual path, it can seem like a very complicated journey. There are so many different techniques and practices that are available so many different forms we can explore, and it seems so many different goals that it's possible to entertain. When we explore many of these paths, we see that there are so many, again, such a variety of different promises that are being made. And it does appear that we are called upon to do so much that there is so much to do. It's easy to become somewhat lost in a maze of doing and forget what the heart of the spiritual journey of the spiritual life is really concerned with. Essentially, I don't personally feel that a meditative path is really very complicated at all. I actually feel this is one of the most simple paths, simple things that we can do in our lives. This path is one that essentially speaks to the heart of every single person who wishes to know the end of suffering and who wishes to understand what it means to be free. This is the bottom line of this journey. This path is essentially concerned with peace and freedom and well-being, with learning or remembering how to love well. And it's a path that is concerned with renewing our, con our connection with the inner wisdom that we carry with us already. For most people, this path is a path of gentle awakenings, of calm and yet profound illuminations that transforms their consciousness and their life. And again, this is the purpose. Transformation is what? The inevitable effect of understanding. Transformation that leads us to understand how to touch our world with compassion and understanding and wisdom and to touch ourselves, our own inner world, in the same spirit. By nurturing calm and connectedness, our own intuition, our own inner wisdom is able to speak more clearly with its own truth. Sometimes this path is described as a way of coming home after a long journey. Many of the understandings that we will discover in this time that we spend here together are not going to be new understandings. They are not always new revelations, but rather that through the calmness, the steadiness, and the openness that we cultivate in this time and space, somehow our understandings deepen 
or emerge in a much clearer way. Now sometimes when when we begin on a spiritual path, or even for people who have spent many years exploring the variety of traditions that are available, we are sometimes attracted by the prospect or the possibility of having some very grand awakenings, some major illuminations, some headline insights. We are looking for the big ones that we are sure are there. I think it's really important to understand in some ways uh, the ways in which our own cultural backgrounds, conditioned backgrounds, can actually sometimes flavor the ways in which we approach our path or flavor even what we sense is important or what we are looking for. There are two things which I think in our backgrounds and in our conditioning which add a particular flavor to our approaches to meditation. One is that we do come from a culture which increasingly has an addiction to intensity. You notice our roller coaster rides are getting taller. (laughs) All of the time. You notice our movies are becoming increasingly violent. You notice the intensity sometimes that is promoted in our world as being a desirable, a desirable asset to experience. You know those Pepsi ads about, you know, done it, been there, did it. How much we can be almost addicted to accumulating big experiences big moments, you know, major, major stretches. The other addiction, I think, which is really very prevalent in our culture and which we must never underestimate is the addiction to the pleasant sensation. Um, And what comes with that, of course, is the aversion to the unpleasant sensation and success sometimes being defined as a capacity to attain the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant. This does lead us, of course, to developing a mind which is rather entranced, not only with the pleasant experience, but is also very fascinated with strategies. Fascinated with strategies about how actually to get the pleasant experience and the strategies to avoid the unpleasant experience. Part of that addiction to the pleasant experience is, of course, to regard, the unple- to regard pain or even to regard a slight unpleasant sensation as something to be eradicated, banished, uh, terminated in whatever way is possible. It is, I think, somewhat easy to understand in the context of this kind of influence and conditioning that we can come to regard meditation or a spiritual path as another solution that we will add to our portfolio of strategies to banish the unpleasant sensation, to fix ourselves or fix our world. It is also easy to come to regard meditation as somehow a magical path, 
a magical path that is uh, in some way through some kind of breakthrough or grand illumination, a way of perhaps delivering us easy answers or painless solutions to existential problems. Um, and one of the ways that we sometimes see that delivery being made is, of course, through having grand experiences and insights as a way of ending pain. Now, I can't say that this is entirely just a cultural influence. You know, increasingly in our world, the spiritual world has become so incredibly sophisticated. And promises abound in the spiritual world. If you pick up so many magazines or books these days, you enter into the world of spiritual dazzle. Spiritual entrancement. There are so many things to do and apparently so many shortcuts. I have noticed that there is a lot of promise of shortcuts. We can do enlightenment intensives. We can have breakthroughs. We can have past life experiences. We can do ego annihilation workshops. We can have Shakti experiences. We can awaken our Kundalinis. There is a lot that we can do, a lot that we can do, and a whole lot of experiences that it's possible for us to have, and a whole lot of spiritual sophistication that it's possible for us to gain. And it is understandable that we can become easily enchanted by promises of shortcuts. You know, the most direct way. There's a lot of most direct ways to enlightenment existing. I know for myself, when I uh, was in Asia in the early 70s, I certainly was enchanted with the world of experiences. And part of my time in Asia, along with hundreds if not thousands of other people, was spent on um, doing pilgrimages around the guru circuits, basically looking for the guru who was going to have the most shakti or offer us the most enlightening, the most high, the most ultimate experience. You know, and part of my own, own uh, journey in that was accumulating these grimy red strings around my neck <laughs> that I used to receive whenever I got a tantric initiation or some sort of transmission or, or some sort of, uh, you know, secret teaching. And, of course, part of that was where you would meet all these other people who had these grimy red strings around their neck. And you would meet someone else in that circuit, and you would imme- your eyes would immediately be drawn to their red strings as a way of kind of checking out their spiritual credentials. <laughs> you know, whether they'd had more transitions than I'd had, you know, and where they got them from, etc., etc. And a lot of that time was spent looking for the Big Bang, you know, looking for the most explosive experience. And in one tradition that I practiced in, there was even a kind of safety net. You know, when I was practicing the Tibetan tradition, for example, you know, um, 
some people, and I can't exclude myself from this, I have to say, um, began to study a practice where you could open up a hole on, your t on the top chakra on your head in case you didn't get enlightened in your this lifetime. Your consciousness was immediately supposed to make this big jump into a better realm. So you had enough, another chance next time around which I consider to be the most ultimate spiritual security, you know. At least you weren't going to go down. <laughs> now, there, there is, I think, no doubt that I actually learned a great deal from this exploration. Not what I expected to learn, but I learned a great deal from this exploration. I think many of us do learn a great deal from this exploration. I think one lesson that we learn is, is that meditation is not a prescription to avoid pain. We learn that one. That meditation is not a formula and it's not a prescription to avoid pain. Another lesson I think that we learn is that all experiences, and there are some pretty fascinating ones it's possible to have, but that all experiences, they can be extraordinarily inspiring but that no matter how high or how blissful they are, they come to an end. I think another thing we learn is that no technique and no form and no path intrinsically guarantees liberation no matter how many promises are made. The liberation has to do with wisdom and not with a particular technique. And there is no kind of linear progression towards liberation. I think understanding these lessons, I know, for me, and I think these lessons can be very profound insights, that actually our path, our spiritual path, our own journey, becomes very, very much simpler. If liberation, if freedom is not an experience that we gain and not a goal that we can possess, then liberation and freedom can only be discovered in the moment we are awakened is imminent, not separate, never separate, never apart from where we are. If enlightenment is not an experience that is going to pass away, then it is only some, an understanding that can be awakened to, that transforms our entire consciousness, our entire way of seeing. It's not an experience, but liberation is a cessation of ignorance through awakening to what is true. If no technique or form or practice can guarantee the end of suffering or guarantee wakefulness, if no per person or prescription can deliver to us happiness or liberation or wisdom, then surely we can see that all that we do here in these practices all that we do here through these forms is utilize them as vehicles, given life by our intention, our dedication, our commitment. It is what allows these vehicles to be transforming and means of deepening and understanding. But they too are to be let go of. The Buddha used the analogy of the raft that if you came if a person was to come to a raging river and wanted to reach the other shore, then it would be common sense and clear seeing to build a raft to go from that shore to the other shore. 
And then the Buddha said, well, you know, once the person has arrived on the other shore, would it be a wise thing to do then to pick up the raft and put it on their head and carry it? No. It is time then to let it go. What we are doing here through the forms and practices we are using, they are like doorways. Doorways into understanding. Doorways into compassion. Doorways into depth. But they are not ends in themselves. I feel that there are a few insights that are important that really help us to travel this journey well and help us to use this vehicle that we have here so skillfully. One of the insights that is really important, I think, for us and is really a foundation for our path is actually to look very carefully, each one of us, within ourselves and actually look at what we honor and value and cherish. Really examine what it is that we are seeking for here. Examine what it is and explore what it is that we are seeking for in our own path, in our own spiritual life, in our own meditation. I mean, in many ways, this may seem like a really easy question, you know, and we can come up with some really easy answers. And it's very easy to have easy answers. But yet when we do, most of us, I think, when we do look within ourselves, we see we carry within us very many conflicting and sometimes very ambivalent voices and forces within ourselves. And we see that carried out and borne out in our experience. For example, we might say, you know, well, I really, I really treasure letting go. And next moment, we see ourselves wanting to hoard a pleasant experience. You know, we can say to ourselves, well, you know, I really uh, want to be open except to <laughs> my roommate who snores, you know. We can say, you know, I really want to be free. And then we can see how at times we desperately cherish identities that feel safe and easy. We can say, that un- we can say oh, I really understand that renunciation is liberating as long as I only have to renounce the unpleasant. You know, there are so many ways in which we can carry these ambivalent and sometimes conflicting forces within ourselves. Um, it is our path becomes very much simpler if it begins with this most fundamental exploration and questioning of what it is that we truly do value and seek for. Not to say that then everything just easily falls into place, but we, we have a really intuitive sense of inner direction, of our inner journey, And we are able to challenge, perhaps, those voices that draw us away from what we do honor and value and seek as a a quality of depth and worthiness in our lives. Part of that questioning is really very honestly looking into our inner world and into our lives and really being able to distinguish between what are the pathways that actually lead to sorrow, 
to suffering, to separation, to division, and really looking at what are the pathways in our lives, the choices that really lead to peace and to closeness and to sensitivity and understanding. I think another insight that is really crucial in beginning our journey is to really have a very honest and deep understanding of the nature of experience because unless we really understand the nature of experience we won't have the willingness to renounce our infatuation with experience. To really also look into our lives, our own stories and to really clearly see that no matter how high, how glamorous, how exciting, how admirable, how esoteric experiences we have, that every experience that has a beginning also has an ending. Now, many of our experiences can be very inspiring, but if they are identified with, they are a prison. Our experiences may reinforce and flatter or they may or threaten our sense of identity. But this is what experience does. There is no experience without the experiencer to make it happen or to have it happen to. To be free, to be truly liberated, is actually to go beyond the world of experience. Because it is to go beyond the world of the experiencer. No matter how glamorous our portfolio of experiences are, they will pass. They will end. To be free is not about having good experiences. It's about understanding ourselves, our world, in a way that totally, totally and radically transforms our consciousness, bringing joy and bringing freedom. Another insight I think that is really fundamental to beginning this journey is to really understand that the path that we travel here is in no way separate from our lives. This is not a hobby we do in our better moments. It's not a place of recovery from all the errors we may have made outside of this. It is not a sanctuary just that we flee to in our worst moments. This is a path of awareness and questioning and transformation. And there is nothing that is separate from awareness and questioning and transformation. Everything is included. This is a path that could be called the everything matters journey. Because the only place that transformation can ever occur is the moment we are awake and present in. There is not another moment. It's not going to sneak up on us by surprise when we're sleeping, when we're spacing out, you know, when we're lost somewhere. The only moment transformation can occur is the moment we are awake and present in. This is a path about the end of suffering and freedom. And this can, this, the end of suffering, the discovery of freedom can never be projected into a distant goal. We are the only ones that ever know in the moment where we are following avenues of suffering and where we are following the pathways of wisdom. We are not psychic spies. I have no idea what you do when you sit. (laughs) Absolutely no idea. I haven't got a clue. 
you choose, you know, you want to choose, space out, fantasize, you know, plan your next dinner party. I don't know. Enjoy. You know, you choose to be awake or to be open or to see clearly. That is the choice you are making. There is no one in our lives, no matter how wise or loving they are, that is ever going to make those choices for us. You know, we are the only ones that make those choices within ourselves and within every moment that we sit. And I think this is really a crucial realization. You know, I think this is really a crucial realization because this, when we make that realization, somehow this path becomes our journey rather than something that, you know, somebody, some vague person up here is saying freedom's a good idea you know, anybody, <laughs> you know, that's not, it doesn't make any difference in our lives. It's not going to transform us. We are the only ones who know in the moment, in our own journeys, what are the choices we are making, what are the pathways we are following. Another insight that is important, these are beginning insights, okay? <laughs> Another insight that is important as we begin this journey is to realize that we don't actually practice insight. This is a good thing to know. We call this Vipassana insight meditation. That's not entirely accurate. The word Vipassana comes from the Satipatthana Sutra of the Buddha, which is about deepening and understanding. You know, I hear people say they come from the Vipassana tradition. I have no idea what they're talking about. There's no such thing as a Vipassana tradition. There is a tradition of wisdom in which Vipassana meditation is one form that is cultivated. As far as I know, most spiritual traditions, most authentic and genuine genuine spiritual traditions that are concerned with freedom are concerned with insight. You know, we don't have a kind of claim on insight here. And we cannot, this insight is not something we can practice. It's not like a formula we get better at the more that we are familiar with it. What we do actually in this practice of satipatthana <clears throat> meditation is that we nurture many factors within our own being and through the practice which actually cultivates an inner environment that is conducive to insight. That is what we do. We cultivate an inner environment through calmness, through balance, through focus, through serenity, an inner environment which is inviting of understanding, which lends itself to the emergence of insight. Now, what I would like to do a little bit also in the talk this evening is perhaps to demystify this word insight because it can become a little bit cliched. You know, people talk about, you know, insight meditation and practicing insights and getting insights. And sometimes I feel, you know, in, in the use of this word insight, for some people it's actually rather intimidating. And it's for some people there's a feeling of a subtle pressure being exerted. You know, they're waiting for insights or expecting insights to happen or waiting for, for some wondrous event to occur where it's going to be clear to them that they've had an insight. Um, 
recognizing that we have a lot of stories. You know, most of us have probably read books, you know, and, and seen the little Buddha, and you know, we, you know, we, you know, we've seen all this stuff. We have stories about insight, and most of them are pretty momentous. You know, we heard about the Buddha, he got it underneath the Bodhi tree. Something happened there, he got it. We hear Zen, you know, Zen stories where, where, you know, people get hit with a stick and they get it. They suddenly get it. We hear other stories about breakthroughs. And all of these stories sound really, really exciting and really grand. But when we get right down to it, many people have absolutely no idea what getting it actually means or what, what they actually got. I mean, it's for sure something was got, but we're not sure what that's supposed to look like. And for some people with those stories, what happens is they sit hoping, impatient, sometimes bewildered, waiting to get it, or waiting for an experience to happen that will tell them that they've got it. And sometimes with that, feeling rather deflated or a failure if nothing dramatic is happening in their meditation practice. And so other people actually feel embarrassed to talk about insight because they're not sure, you know, what it's supposed to look like, you know, or what kind of insights they're supposed to have. You know, what are the right insights, you know? It seems there are ones that are supposed to happen, um, and we're not sure how we'll even know whether we've got the right insight, and we're embarrassed to ask. You know, does this, is this an insight? You know, is that an insight? You know, you know, in case somebody comes and says, that's not an insight, you know? It's just a thought, you know. Oh no, you know, there's awful sense of, of embarrassment. Now, I wouldn't like at all to imply that insight never happens in a dramatic way because sometimes it does, and I don't want to at all put that out of the realm of possibility. Um, the attention we cultivate, the dedication we bring to being awake since can open our consciousness and open our being at times in ways that are extraordinarily startling. There are such things as breakthroughs. I don't want to underestimate or say that that never happens. It's, there are such things. It's okay to entertain that possibility. Sometimes insights or moments of understanding can shine so clearly that our entire belief system about ourselves and our world can be dissolved in a moment. There are experiential insights that can occur in meditation where there are moments and experiences of profound love or startling encounters with impermanence, with emptiness, with connectedness, with transparency. And these moments make an extraordinary impression upon our consciousness and one of the effects of these moments is that doubt is banished. 
But it is also true, there is a whole other way in which insight and understanding emerges as a way of very gentle and very calm awakenings. Many people have insights and never know it. They never know it, actually, until they go out into their lives and go out into their world, say, into situations which may previously have been really charged or difficult, and the charge is gone. Something has shifted, something's been let go of, and there's no way even of identifying that moment that something did shift or something was understood. There is a way in which understanding happens in an incredibly gentle and yet very deep way that is not necessarily being interpreted or solidified through thought or through a moment of recognition that says, oh, I had an insight, you know, or, or I had this particular kind of insight. Part of demystifying insight, I think, is to acknowledge how much wisdom we actually carry within us already. Awareness is always and has always been to greater and lesser extents a companion in our lives. Through awareness, we have all learnt from our lives. We have learnt about the prisons that are created through craving and grasping. We have learnt the lessons of freedom that have their foundations in being able to let go. We've all learned this. This is not news to us. We have all seen in our lives the incredible changes that can take place in our identities, not only in a more wider sense in our lives, but even on a moment-to-moment level, how we can create identities that seem so real and so solid and convincing, and in the next moment, they're gone. I had a, a reflection about this sometime earlier this year. When I was in my teens and in my early hippies, I was a, a, a convinced hippie. Um, I mean, I, I, that's what I did. I thought I was always going to be a hippie. Always, my whole life. I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I used to look with disdain upon anybody who was older than 30, you know, and talk about how straight they were and how they didn't understand the world. You know, I was never going to be like that. Well, lo and behold, a few months ago, there I was. I do have another life off this cushion. And there I was helping out at a jumbo sale in my children's school. And as I was helping out in this jumbo sale in my children's school, it suddenly came to me, if anybody had ever told me when I was 19, that I would be there serving in this jumbo sale, I would never have believed them. (laughs) I would never have believed that this could ever be a possibility in my life. And how much, you know, in our own lives, we've gone through these changes in identity that seem so solid, so clung to, so held on to. It changes. It's not always negative change. It's not always a failure. Yet somehow, we move through changes in our lives. Have you ever seen it in meditation, your identity change? You know, you can do a sitting convinced of being the absolute most wretched, miserable meditator in the entire universe. You know, until the next moment of calmness, you know. And then then you're a hermit. (laughs) You're on your way to Asia already. Your bags are packed, you know. 
either both of them are equally convincing. They seem so true in the, in the moment they're gone. We've learned these lessons in our lives. We have learned the peace that comes from allowing and generosity and the hardness and alienation that can come from holding. We have learned in our lives about the suffering created through judgment and fear and aversion. We have learned the lessons of limitation. We have all learned these lessons. We have also learned the lessons of forgiveness and acceptance. None of these insights and none of these lessons are new to us. They have come to us through awareness, through our life experience, and they have formed a body of wisdom within ourselves. And yet, it is also clear there can be some big gaps here. It's not enough to have just knowledge. It's not enough to have or to know something just intellectually. And our practice is about decreasing that gap. Our practice is actually learning how to live in accord with the wisdom that is already within us, how to embody that in our lives. Our practice is really knowing on a moment-to-moment level what it means to cease to follow pathways of suffering and to understand what it really means on an experiential level, to live in a spirit of freedom, to live in a wise way. What we are doing here is nurturing an inner climate, an inner environment that lends itself to that deepening, to that inner oneness between our understanding and our embodiment of it. We see that insight is not so much something that we strive for or that we pursue, but rather what we do here is much more question and ask of ourselves what are really the qualities that we foster and that we develop in our path that really provide a foundation for awakening. The qualities that are the foundation, I think, for awakening are the qualities of calmness, of happiness, of generosity, and of a willingness to learn. These are not goals, but qualities that we must learn to foster in every moment, not far away from us. Now, when we sit with a body that is filled with objections and complaints, when we sit with a mind that is bursting with thoughts and images, we hear about calm abiding, And in a way, it doesn't really seem to make any sense to us in that moment. We feel that calmness has to be somewhere else, some other place. What does it mean to be calm? What does it mean to be calm, to be still, to be alert and balanced in the midst of our storms? In the midst of our storms. Do we really have to get rid of our thoughts, banish our minds, and subdue our bodies in order to be calm? If that's the case, we might as well say that the only calm people are dead people. (laughs) We don't have to do this. Calmness is not dependent 
upon any of that. The nature of the mind is to think. The nature of the body is to have sensations. The nature of the heart is to have feelings. None of these are obstacles to calmness. And calmness is not a complicated task that demands striving and heroic effort. Calm abiding is actually something much simpler. Abandon clinging is calmness. Abandon clinging. And there is calmness in all things. Abandon the clinging and craving for the pleasant and the resistance to the unpleasant. And we discover a profound calmness of being. Busyness and obsession and struggle are the children of clinging. They are the children of holding on to the pleasant and resisting the unpleasant. That is our prison. Clinging and resistance. See, check out for yourself how true this might be in your meditation. We divide things, our meditation, into things we call good and bad sittings. What happens when you have a good sitting and you cling to it, you create a model out of it, you try and create an institution out of it? What happens in the next sitting? (laughs) Disaster happens. Disaster happens. What happens if you have a sitting that we call difficult or challenging because there's more sensations and more thoughts and more feelings? That's basically what's there. We call it difficult. Is it difficult in itself or is it difficulty in the aversion? When is that a prison? Is there any prison without resistance? I listened to an interview recently with this Burmese woman who has been under house arrest for so many years and she said, I didn't ever for a single moment feel not free. Walls don't make imprisonment. Clinging makes imprisonment. What are the, the other thing that clinging does? It makes it an entrancement with experience. To have the pleasant, to not have the unpleasant. So when there is clinging, we are always being pushed from one form of experience to have another because, to another because we want more of the pleasant, we want less of the unpleasant. We are chasing, chasing sensations. There is no freedom in chasing sensations. No freedom in chasing experiences. All experiences arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass in awareness. They move through us. They are no prison in themselves. This is actually why we use focus in meditation, why we suggest focus, why we suggest using the breath, because it is a reminder not to be lost. It is a reminder not to be chasing It's a reminder not to be pursuing and a reminder that we don't need to be imprisoned anywhere. By using focus, we have a reminder to be present in the presence of all things. 
It's a great Chinese sage who once said, when my mind is at peace, the world is at peace. What we do on our meditation is to learn to rest in the seeing rather than being entangled in what is seen. If you can remember that, to rest in the seeing rather than being entangled in what is seen. Our meditation is a very free place. Another quality that we foster is the quality of happiness, which I spoke the other night about, about not being preoccupied with perfection, not being preoccupied with imperfection, not being preoccupied with fixing what we perceive as being wrong, because none of us are ever going to have a perfect body, mind, or personality. None of us are ever going to live in a world which perfectly obeys our desires. We don't need perfection in order to be content. And contentment is something much deeper than a momentary flash or a momentary high. Contentment is a way of abiding, a way of abiding. What really happens, what is really transformed through being relieved of the responsibility to fix all things, what really happens is that we're not defined by the contents of our experience any longer. When you look at those moments when you're struggling, it's all about, as Anna was talking about yesterday evening, the roots of our struggle are all around I am. You know, I am greedy, I am angry, I am miserable, I'm a failure, I'm a success. You know, as long as we have the I am, we have struggle. Because we have then concerns about getting rid of or about keeping. As long as we have the I am. Relieving ourselves of this exaggerated sense of I is to really see what happens, that instead of I am, there is just thoughts, just feelings, just sensations. You might explore that in your meditation. Try a single hour where you really don't take too seriously any of the notions of I am. When there is just the anger, just the sorrow, just the happiness, just the well-being, you might discover some great contentment. The Buddha once said, to abide in happiness, to abide in profound peace, is to not abide anywhere. Is to not abide anywhere. To cling to nothing. Contentment is another quality, which is a foundation of insight. Contentment is about extending to ourselves a vast generosity of heart. Extending a vast generosity of heart to all things. It is about not lingering on our judgments, our comparisons, our shoulds, Not clinging or rejecting, not pursuing or holding, but allowing all things to be. Allowing all things to be. 
this generosity of heart of allowing all things to be without being for or against is the highest gift of compassion, the highest gift of loving kindness that we can offer to ourselves or to our world. And the last and perhaps most important factor, which is the foundation of insight, is the willingness to learn. The willingness to learn. So often we do think that there is a better moment to be awake in. You know, when we sit with a mind that's struggling or aversive or complaining or bewildered, we think, oh, this is not the right moment to be awake in. <laughs> you know, there's a better one. When we sit, you know, with our banana and our cup of tea instead of walking, we think, <laughs> this moment wasn't the moment meant to be awake in. After I finish my banana and cup of tea, then I'll be awake. You know, when we sit in our, or lie in our beds at night with our roommates snoring, we think this is definitely not the moment to be awake in. <laughs> There's a better moment. Often our better moments are gain are so much rooted in our willingness to embrace primarily that which is pleasant and supporting of the self. Those moments which are perhaps challenging or disturbing of the self, we usually think are the better moments, to, uh, those are the moments to postpone wakefulness. There isn't actually a better moment ever to be awake in than the moment when we're in, that we're in. And this is where we really need to cultivate our willingness to learn. Awareness never makes any distinctions. Awareness makes no distinctions about better opportunities for wakefulness. Every moment is the moment for wakefulness. The areas of insight which are um, focused upon or nurtured in this path can be described as three. One area, areas of insight which are liberating. One area of insight which is important is what we might call personal insight. To understand ourselves, to know ourselves on a personal level. Not about our histories, not about our past, but to know on a moment-to-moment -moment level what it is that moves us, what it is that governs us, what it is that frees us, what it is that imprisons us. To know ourselves on a moment-to-moment -moment level, what brings us joy, what brings us sorrow, the places, the, 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 the holes that we fall in and the qualities that raise us. To know this on a personal level, on a moment-to-moment -moment level, this is important so that we can know the pathways within our own being, what it is that we need to nurture, what it is that we need to let go of. Another area of insight is not about personal insight. It is might what we call universal insight in the, in the sense that these are understandings or rhythms of being, rhythms of life that apply to all of existence. To understand deeply the nature of impermanence, the nature of change, this is a liberating insight. 
to understand the nature of the emptiness of self. This is a liberating insight. To understand the nature of the unsatisfactory, of dissatisfaction, to really understand that clearly. This is a liberating insight. The other area of insight that is really treasured and honored in this journey, again, is something that is not personal. It is what is referred to as, as liberating insight, or mystical insight, or truly understanding the nature of unconditioned reality, understanding the nature of truth on its most profound level seeing through the world of appearances and dualities and understanding the truth or the nature of the unconditioned that dissolves all separation. There is no linear model around these insights. The moment that we are awakened invites us to understand, to understand more and more deeply on a personal level, on a universal level, and to understand what is true. Everything that we do here is in the service of wakefulness. Everything that we do here is in the service of awareness and freedom. If we could take a moment or two to sit together. May all beings rest in calmness. May all beings deepen in understanding. May all beings live in freedom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.